Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, again, we're so glad to have you. We are in a series in this letter that Paul's written to the church in Corinth. The letter's called 1 Corinthians, and so far we've made our way all the way to chapter 6, making some headway. And so that's where I want to begin by reading this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll read verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of God. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to shame you. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. is the Word of God. If you want to follow along, you be sure to use your sermon outline there. Let me just go ahead and read the sermon theme. I mean, you already don't like the sermon title, right? Why not rather suffer? Maybe the sermon theme unpacks it a little better. Settle your own grievances in the church, even if it means you suffer loss, rather than taking brothers to an unrighteous court and shaming Christ. And do not defraud your brother or persist in any other unrighteousness. Because you are the righteous who will inherit the kingdom of God in Christ. That sounds a little better. Let's see how that, that's worked out. First, I want you to see a little bit of the flow. Sometimes as we take these little pieces, we miss a little bit of the flow. Think back to chapter 4, or flip back there. And you remember that Paul confronts the church for their arrogance. They, they think that this worldly arrogance looks like power. But it's not power. It's not the power of the cross. And so at the end of chapter 4, he says, Shall I come to you? Shall I come and visit you with a rod of discipline? And the answer is yes, because when you get into chapter 5, they're tolerating an incestuous man in the church. Their arrogance has led them to this unrighteousness in the church. And he talks to them about church discipline, and at the end of chapter 5, he says, he reminds them, You're to judge one another inside the church, God will judge the world. 
Okay, so you don't have to worry about judging those people outside of the church. So now we, we walk over into chapter 6, and they're judging people inside the church. Believers inside the church who have grievances or disputes with one another, but they're using judges from outside the church. I mean, they're just so worldly. Trying to live like the world around them, and it continues to corrupt their own righteousness. I mean, it's just a comedy of errors with this church. One after another after another. Although they have been given the wisdom of God, which Paul's been clear about, they behave foolishly and sinfully. And so I think in this first section, verses 1 to 6, Paul's saying, settle your own disputes with brothers inside the church. It's going to be clear to us. What's actually happening? What's actually happening? Well, believers, because they're still sinners, we identify with that, are taking each other to court over little things. This is not criminal court. Paul is not talking about murder or armed theft. This is civil court. In fact, I think we would probably call it small claims court. Paul characterizes their disputes as grievances, verse 1. Trivial cases, verse 2. Matters limited only to this life, verse 3. These are personal grievances and disputes over little things that the church can and should deal with themselves. What's at stake are small amounts of money, small amounts of property, large amounts of ego and pride. So these personal grievances, these disputes over little things, reveal something about the Corinthians, don't they? They're being selfish. They're grasping at stuff. You know, like toddlers grasp at stuff. They grasp at stuff and then they say, mine. I'm sure this isn't happening downstairs right now. They grasp at something and say, mine. And the other one says, no, it's mine. And they would say, well, I'll sue you. They say, no, I'm going to sue you. You see, and it's become a matter of winning. I want to beat you. I want everyone to see me beat you. And I want it stamped on an official paper that I beat you. Because they're arrogant. And they want to boast in their wealth and their success and their position. Even inside the church. Even over little things. And this seems wise to them. Because this is how it's done out there in the culture around them. So they lawyer up. Not really. They don't need a lawyer. They just need a judge. And the courts and the judges ran on this idea. The civil courts, the small claims courts, operated on money, not justice. The judges were corrupt. They took bribes and promised favors to render a favorable verdict to the highest bidder. So the richer and the more powerful you were, the more justice, wink, wink, you received. It wasn't a court, it was an auction. That's why Paul calls them unrighteous. So they took their fellow believers to court with a win-at-any-cost attitude. They made enemies of one another, legal adversaries of brothers and sisters. And the small claims court judges loved this. They loved it when church got out on Sunday, and instead of everybody going to Denny's, they all went to court, right? I mean, they worked on volume. 
The more cases, the more money. You can see how that works. They were, they were greedy swindlers. And they loved it when the Christians came to pay them for justice. The Corinthians were so arrogant and foolish that they failed to see how having been sanctified in Christ, back in chapter 1 Paul wrote this, having been called by Christ, also in chapter 1, shaped how they were to settle their grievances with one another. It's supposed to be different. And so Paul shames them for it. Remember there was a point where Paul wrote, and he was not shaming them. He was just trying to draw their attention to their sin. And now he says, nope, I'm shaming you. You're guilty. You might as well feel the shame that goes with it. Do you not have wisdom to arbitrate for yourselves? Paul brings to their attention two things. One, that one day saints will judge the world. And two, that one day saints will judge angels. Sometimes I think we make a little too much of these things and we get distracted from what Paul's point is here. These things are true. And these things are found in Scripture. But they're true in this sense. When Christ comes into his kingdom, he will rule and judge. And because we are in Christ, we will rule and judge in him. That's what we need to know. That our ruling and judging is tied to our being in Christ and Christ coming into his kingdom. That's all we need to know about that. But Paul's not, Paul's not encouraging the church with these verses. Okay, He's not saying, aren't you awesome? Look at what's going to happen to you. No, he's using these eschatological truths with biting irony, sarcasm, if you will, to shame them. It may be that the Corinthians were actually saying these things about themselves. I mean, you know how they walked around puffed up, bragging about themselves, boasting about them. They may have been walking around saying, well, we're so wise, one day we're going to judge the world. Gosh, we're just... We're so wise, we're going we're gonna to judge ju uh, angels. Or it may be that Paul brings these things up, which they know about, to suit his purpose. Either way, the point is simple. If you are so wise that you will one day judge the world, which is a big thing, and if you are so righteous that you will one day judge angels, which is even hard for me to understand, then how is it that you cannot arbitrate these little things among yourselves? How is it that you have to defer to unrighteous judges that have no standing in the kingdom, no standing among angels, no standing in the church, to arbitrate your petty little grievances? Your little, selfish, grasping-for-stuff disputes. Here's the shame in verse 5. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Is there not one righteous person among all you really wise people who's wise enough that you would accept their decision over your selfish disputes? Isn't there one? You're foolish. That's what Paul's telling you. You claim to be wise while you submit to the decisions of unrighteous Unbelievers, according to human wisdom that is not from God, you are not wise. You are foolish. And your brothers, your brothers and sisters to one another. You know, even in the Greco-Roman world, for families to have to go outside of the family 
to courts to resolve matters inside of the family, it's an embarrassment. Whoa, what is wrong with them? Holy moly, that sister's going after that sister. And here come the Christians, right? Always calling each other brothers, always calling each other sisters, claiming to be the children of their God, all lovey-dovey. And here they come bringing their petty grievances to Corinthian small claims court for everyone to watch. And so Paul says, you've already been defeated. You've already been defeated. Look at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. The mere fact that you have a case before the court is already a defeat for you. Before any verdict is rendered, Paul says, favorable or unfavorable, both parties, both brothers, both sisters have lost. You've lost your Christian integrity by going to an unrighteous court. You've lost your Christian love by making enemy of your brothers. You've lost your Christian witness by demanding your right to grasp every little thing you can get. Now, Paul's not saying that there's no positive use for secular courts and judges. He makes use of them himself. Remember in Acts chapter 18, was Paul was preaching Christ crucified in Corinth. The Jews took him before Gallio, the proconsul, for breaking Caesar's worship law. They took him to court. And this was no small claims court. This was criminal prosecution, and it was thrown out. Paul got a favorable judgment. Later, you know in Paul's life, Paul would appeal his arrest by uh, the Jerusalem Jews all the way to Caesar himself. But that was not a petty matter. That was a matter of life and death. And that was not by brothers, but by the unrighteous. Some things are not important to righteous people who live in plain sight of unrighteous people. When it comes to small things, earthly matters, things of little consequence, such things ought to be covered by brotherly love. Such petty disputes and grievances ought to be covered by brotherly love because we're in Christ. Instead of bearing witness to Christ's love, they were bearing witness to their personal greed and their personal power and their eagerness to swindle a brother. Paul characterizes these judges in verse 1 as unrighteous and in verse 4 as having no standing among believers and in verse 6 as unbelievers. He says, you are demanding your rights be upheld by people who don't know Christ, people who don't know how to serve others, people who are not humble, bribable people who inflict loss on others for personal gain. That's who you go to. And you're showing them that you are just like them. As if you have nothing in Christ. You know, just recently I was sharing the gospel with a man, and this was for the second time. He was a kid, he grew up in church, so I asked him why he doesn't go to church anymore. And he said this was the reason. He said it doesn't seem to make a difference. 
He sees people in his community who go to church do the same bad things as those who don't go to church. And before he ever rejected Christ, he rejected the church because of the people in it. People like this. I very quickly told him that's not a reason to not trust Christ. And I very boldly invited him to come to this church and see those whose lives have been changed by Christ. And Paul is asking the Corinthians, don't you know what you have in Christ? Don't you know what you have in Christ? And their answer is no. They were going to court and testifying that trivial things like a little money, a little property, a little prideful satisfaction mattered more to them than their brothers, mattered more to them than their church, mattered more to them than Christ's gospel, mattered more to them than the Savior and their Lord. That was their testimony. That was their witness. Right there in court. You see, if the love of Christ does not bring us to a place where we love one another, then something is shamefully wrong. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. 1 John chapter 3. And so Paul says, shame on you for wronging a brother. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Wouldn't it be better to maintain your faithfulness to Christ? Take up your cross. To live out the truth of the gospel that Christ suffered for you. To love and have the love of the brethren. To forbear and forgive. And to command. How do you like that word? To command a robust, visible, believable, compelling kingdom witness. And suffer a little, a little harm. And lose a little stuff. Not because it's considered polite. Not because you want to be seen as nice. Not merely to avoid confrontation. But because it's the heart of Jesus' gospel. The Corinthians' arrogance was showing. And so Paul says... You're arrogant, and it's worse than we first thought. Look again at verse 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. You know, in chapter 5, think about this for a moment. Chapter 5, Paul dealt with discipline in the church. He's teaching the whole church to stay pure and teaching them about discipline because of a specific case of incest that had been reported to him. Here in these verses, Paul is dealing with lawsuits in the church with some specific cases in mind that have been reported to him. It seems that some in the church are knowingly and purposefully wronging and defrauding their fellow believers. 
It may have been rich people defrauding poor people. It may have been rich people wronging rich people or poor people wronging poor people. We don't know, so it still applies to everyone in the church. But their arrogance had led to downright unrighteousness. And it brings a strong rebuke from the apostle. He says, repent and be who you are. It's been his call all along, isn't it? You're the church of God. Be who you are. You're sanctified in Christ. Live out your life in Christ. Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not persist in your unrighteous living. In verse 1, Paul called these judges the unrighteous. And now, he calls those who persist in lawsuits in the church to wrong and defraud their brothers the unrighteous. He connects them. The incestuous man in chapter 5 was professing belief, but living in an unrepentant and sin, unrepentant sin and unrighteousness. And he was put out of the church. Paul is warning those persisting in unrighteous lawsuits that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're professing belief, but they're living in the old leaven of malice and evil. Right? Chapter 5. Again, it's not one sexually immoral act or one act of greed, but a lifestyle of unrighteousness that Paul is condemning. Just as in chapter 5, Paul broadens the list out from one to warn everybody. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, which commentators say probably points to temple prostitution, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, which commentators point out there are all kinds of social gatherings and all kinds of business gatherings probably held in pagan temples, nor revilers, it's verbal abuse, nor swindlers, back to swindlers. You remember Paul's initial question? Do you dare go to law before the unrighteous? Yes, we dare. Because we're not after justice. We're not after just decisions, but unrighteous ones. They were selfishly grasping for every little thing they could get by leveraging their influence and manipulating judges to take advantage of their brothers. And so Paul is shouting, repent! Either they are righteous in Christ but have shamefully fallen into unrighteous behavior and need to repent, or their unrighteous behavior reveals that they were never righteous in Christ and they need to repent. It's one or the other. It's not both. And Paul is thinking really well of them. He's thinking the best of them. He's speaking to them as his children in the faith, as their father in the faith. He says, such were some of you. But the new life is not characterized by these things. Okay, the unleavened lump is not characterized by these things. And then Paul quickly follows up his warning with gospel words. Such were some of you. But you're not that way any longer. 
That's the language of transformation. You've been transformed. How? How have we been transformed? You were washed. When you believed the gospel, your sins were washed away by the righteous blood of Christ Jesus. You are no longer dirty. You're clean. And you will be clean in the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. And you were sanctified. This is not our progressive sanctification, which we're experiencing in this life by the grace of God. It's our positional sanctification. Remember back in chapter 1, we talked about that. It's our positional sanctification. God has set you apart from this fallen world to be His holy church. That's your identity. That's who you are. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The moment you believed the gospel, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, when you believed the gospel, by grace alone, through faith alone, you were declared just and right in God's sight. You were declared just and right in God's courtroom. On the cross, Jesus suffered the penalty for your sin and gave you his righteousness. The very righteousness of God who has made you his own. Jesus accomplished your redemption and the Spirit applied it to your soul. You have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that you might understand the things freely given to you by God. It's right here in 1 Corinthians. Like what? Like what, Paul? Like... God's Spirit dwells in you. And you have the mind of Christ. So, all things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Therefore, do not be deceived. All who have been transformed by the righteousness of Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom, Paul says. Yeah, I can't help but think that Paul had to have in mind Psalm 37. Would you turn back to Psalm 37? I want to read the whole psalm. It's 40 verses. It's a lot. I really want to read the whole psalm. Let me just read the first nine verses. And you'll... You'll get the gist of it, but it's just repeated over and over. Repetition teaches us that we will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are righteous and not to worry about the evildoers. Verse 1, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land And befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It only tends to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Sounds good, doesn't it? Isn't that exactly what Paul's saying? Let's read a little more. Pick up in verse 10. In just a little while, 
the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Remember when Paul talked about wisdom, and he said the wisdom of God crushes the wisdom of men? The wisdom of God runs down, chases down, and eliminates the wisdom of men. Keep going in verse 16. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken. Arms means power, right? Power of the cross or empty the power of the cross. This arrogance is a fake power. It's a semblance of power, but it's not real. It's a mirage. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Who's the Lord? He is the Lord Jesus Christ who upholds the righteous. Jesus told his disciples that the Gentiles seek to lord over one another. That's what they do. But it's not that way with you. It's not that way with you. Instead, why not suffer wrong for the sake of righteousness? Instead, why not rather be defrauded for the sake of the gospel. Wouldn't that be better? The Corinthians were not handling their disputes well. Scripture teaches us that we should be willing to suffer loss for the gospel. We must be willing to let go of some things, some of our rights, some of the time, for the sake of the Lord and His gospel. Because this is at the heart of the gospel and at the heart of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Pick up in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why should we be willing to let some things go? Because we have Christ crucified. Because we understand what happened at the cross. Because we grasp who Christ is and who we are in Him. And this changes how we deal with one another when we sin against one another. You have the power to forbear with a brother or a sister if you'll do it. You have the power to forgive 
those who wrong you, if you'll do it. Surely you, who have been forgiven much, can forgive a brother or sister a little. And if you can't handle it on your own, where should you go? Go to the church. That's what Paul says. I don't mean that from now on on Sundays, worship's at 10 a.m. and court's at 2 p.m., although we could do that if it was necessary. But if your brother wrongs you, go to him. And if he won't listen, take, take two or three with you to work things out. And maybe be willing to suffer a little wrong, to suffer a little loss on the negotiation table for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of love, for the sake of your soul. The Corinthians are arrogant because they don't want to be humble. I think we look at humility. I think we look at humility as this really wonderful, really wonderful character trait. And some people have it. They just kind of glow. They glow. They're humble. It's like, it's like, a, little, it's like a little halo that they wear. This person who, who seems to be living the good life and never really suffers. Humility comes at a cost. Humility suffers loss. Humility decides to be wrong the moment it decides to consider someone else more significant than itself. Humility has the mind of Christ. And you have the mind of Christ. Now think and act as Christ. I think Paul gives wonderful instructions about this to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 12. Listen Listen to how these words apply. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Brothers and sisters, we've been washed. We've been sanctified and justified. So that when we have disputes, we're willing to suffer wrong for the gospel. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom that you give to us. Because we are but receivers. And if we did not have it, we would go without it. 
now that we have it, Father, spur us on to ask for more, to ask for wisdom, to ask for discernment and understanding, knowing that you will give it, that you will give it in abundance and in a timely manner, and you won't rebuke us for it. Father, help us to be willing to let earthly things go, to let things of no consequence go, to let those things that we've hammered into our head as our rights that we grasp at, help us to let them go when it's a good thing to do so. Make us your people willing to suffer wrong for the gospel. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God we pray. Amen. Amen.